Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. The U.S. is set to restrict investments in China, but the scope of those limitations is going to be limited. It's only applying to companies that rely on, you know, cutting edge technology related to things that we talk about all the time here, like artificial intelligence and quantum computing. So we're going to get right into this with a reporter who got the big scoop on this story, Anna Edgerton. Anna, it's great to speak with you. And because of you and your your colleagues, Bloomberg has reporting on this that uh, no other outlet has. So we're very lucky to have you to discuss this with us. What specifics can you share with us about what these proposed restrictions are going to look like? Yeah, I think the big takeaway is that you know, this measure is going to be much narrower than it was at one point in time. This is something that the Biden administration has been working on for more than a year, nearly two years. And at one point, they were talking about including other industries like biotechnology, uh, mining of critical miner- minerals. And now it's just going to be some activities within these three uh, kind of subsets of sectors, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and super advanced semiconductors. And within that subset of this you know, tech sector, it's only going to apply uh, when it comes to large companies, companies that derive more than half of their revenue from these prohibited activities. So if you have Alibaba in your portfolio, you're probably going to be fine. You know, this is not something that's going to broadly affect the investing climate for people who are putting their money into Chinese companies. So when we talk about how narrow this has become, why? Why is it so narrow? Why not go for a big bang here if the concern is around national security, but also messaging to China? Well, you know, this is a brand new tool. So you, we've heard National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan talk about a small fen- a small yard and a high fence. So this is a fence, so to speak, that investors have never had to confront before. You know, mm-hmm. there are specific companies that have been put on the entities list that are sanctioned that you can't invest in, obviously. But this is the first time that the administration really, I think, of any country has put prohibitions on their country's investors investing in a subset of a sector. So this is new, which I think is why they've made it very narrow. And like I said, you know, this is something we've been waiting to see for a long time. So Kaylee, I know it's your birthday, but we're also very (laughs) excited that it's Outbound Investment Review Day. Woohoo! Executive Order Day, Maddie. I now have to share the date of August 9th for the rest of history. (laughs) I mean, it's extremely rude that they didn't (laughs) consult your birthday when thinking about the calendar for this executive order. Might have been a celebration. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, But Anna, I'm curious when you're when you're talking about the kind of narrowness of this and what the goal is in terms of what uh, the Biden administration is trying to achieve here. I know that Biden is also trying to kind of refresh relations with Beijing. So how does this move impact that relationship? 
Yeah, the kind of moment that I was really watching uh, when it comes to this initiative specifically was when Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was in Beijing, and one of her primary missions in that trip last month was to kind of socialize this idea with her Chinese counterparts and make sure that they understand what this is and what it's not and what the scope would be. And she emphasized over and over again that this is going to be narrow. You know. The main goal of this initiative is to make sure that U.S. venture capitalists, you know, private equity is not kind of seeding these Chinese companies that are then going to be supplying the Chinese military with critical technology that could be used against the United States, not even in an open conflict, but just in kind of, um, you know, opaque ways. So, Mm. you know, this is very, it's a very specific goal. And she, you know, Yellen has said over and over again, this is not something that's going to really tip the balance of the broader investment relationship between the world's two largest economies. All right. Anna Edgerton, Bloomberg Tech and National Security Reporter. Great scoop. Thank you so much for keeping track of this story. It's been a long, long time coming. We want to get another take now on what this actually is going to mean for the markets, thinking about the policy impact here. Libby Cantrell, Managing Director and Head of Public Policy at PIMCO, is joining us now. So, Libby, for investors, how should they be thinking about the implications of this, given it is narrower now? Yes. Well, good afternoon and happy birthday, Kaylee. Um, Thank yeah, you. So, so this is this is part. I think this is something that's sort of important to contextualize because this is, of course, is part of a really a broader approach that, in many ways, was started under the Trump administration, which of course includes you know tariffs, includes export controls, and seen under the Biden administration on, on semiconductors and likely other technologies that are, are forthcoming. Um, and then, of course, it also um, includes sort of the tighter CFIUS investment process as well for inbound uh, capital investments to the United States from from China. So, so again, this is sort of taken in the broader in the broader context. Um, this is sort of one prong of this multi-prong approach. As you were just discussing, though, this is quite a bit more limited. Uh, I think more limited than it was really originally conceived. Now, I think probably more more than a year ago, um, more like 18 months ago, because this has been sort of, you know, being iterated um, by the various folks in the administration. And I think it's really, in some ways, should be viewed as kind of a beta, um, because as you noted, this is actually the, the, the U.S. Uh, government has never done anything like this. This is very, this is very novel. So I think in some ways, this is probably represents, you know, again, a, you know, a part of a broader approach, but also, you know, in many ways, I think probably the beginning of this sort of scrutiny on investors, kind of, kind of investment capital from the U.S. to you know, to China. Now, not everyone's going to be happy with this. So we can talk about the congressional dynamics. You know, Representative Mike Gallagher, the chairman of the U.S. House Select Committee on China, has already, um, you know, previewed his, um, I think, frustration with this sort of more watered down approach. But again, I think from an investment perspective, this should be viewed as sort of one prong and a multi prong approach and something that's probably going to be, um, again, more the beginning than the end in just in terms of, of more scrutiny on on outbound capital going from the U.S. to to China. So in terms of this being the beginning and not the end, Libby, is this something that investors should start to be looking at more closely, maybe getting a little bit concerned about? Just how big could the reach get here? Well, and this is something that, you know, we're talking to our U.S.-based clients quite a bit. And what we're, you know, what we're seeing 
you know, from a practical perspective, is that there is there's already been in many ways some self-sanctioning behavior, i.e., the political risk of investing in China has now increased to such an extent for some some clients, for some investors, that they're just simply withdrawing or at least paring back. Um, what kind of new investments that are in the pipeline. And so I, I, you know, I would be surprised if, you know, even though the policy might be kind of watered down here, if the practical implication for, you know, many investors who just, again, don't want to deal with the kind of the political headache here, not to mention, of course, that U.S., uh, that China may be less of a desirable um, uh, investment target just because of their own kind of economic issues that they're they're dealing with, um, that they might just start kind of retreating or at least you know, paring back some some investment. So I, I think yeah. it would be, you know, I think we'll, we'll see a change in behavior kind of regardless, even though there will be criticism that this has been sort of significantly watered down. Libby, when we're thinking about the China policy question, how much should we be paying attention truly to the administration? And how much is this actually a matter of Congress, which seems to be a lot more hawkish on the China issue than the White House does? Yeah, and I think this is something that we keep saying to our clients, especially as we think about the 2024 election, that the direction of travel on all of this is relatively clear and I think is agnostic in terms of who's actually sitting in the in the White House to some to some extent, right? There are going to be kind of different you know, degrees and and sort of shades here in terms of approach and style, but um, it's you know it's pretty clear that with Congress, as you note, sort of more hawkish and likely kind of leaning in and trying to put more pressure on whomever's sitting in the White House in 2025, um, that this is, again, more, we'll, we'll see sort of more of this. Now, in terms of sort of practically from a policy perspective, it really is the administration that holds the pen here, because even though Congress, much of Congress is more hawkish, they, you know, Congress can't agree on many things. Like <laughs> and, anything uh, <laughs> and they haven't been able to really agree on approach an approach here. I think it's, you know, we've talked about this before. There was an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA, that passed the Senate um, by a very bipartisan basis. I think it was 91 to 6 uh, most recently. But that was just a disclosure kind of based regime in terms of outbound investment. So even that didn't go sort of as far in some ways as what this EO likely is going to do because it didn't have any sort of blocking or sort of prohibition um, you know, types of provisions. So I think that that sort of shows you that while there is a lot of rhetoric from Congress, that actually to really legislate on this stuff is still a relatively high bar. So the administration will still, you know, will still mm-hmm. matter. But the hawkishness, we believe, will kind of continue again, regardless of who's in, in the White House come 2025. Well, Libby, I'm curious when you look at a move like this, how it plays into your overall thinking when it comes to Biden's economic scorecard. Uh, Where are you thinking and how has your thinking changed on how President Biden has handled the economy when you look at a move like this? Yeah, I think in some ways, again, as you all noted, this was so well telegraphed that this is not surprising. Um, and in some ways, it's a relief to know, you know, when we actually see the details of the EO, it will be, it will be a relief because we've been talking about this with our clients for, for a while. I mean, I think broadly in terms of, you know, the so-called, you know, Bidenomics, um, you know, there's, I think the administration, um, 
you know, is really leaning into all of the very strong, you know, economic data, um, and for good reason, right? I mean, unemployment is very low, inflation is coming down, um, you know, growth is sort of remaining robust, and the consumer is hanging in there. You know, the thing was we've discussed before, however, you know, there are some potential headwinds on the horizon that make that strategy somewhat risky. Um, you know, there, we've talked about the resumption of student loan payments, we've talked about kind of Banks, you know, pulling back on consumer, you know, consumer credit. The fact that a lot of folks um, actually haven't had to pay their last year's tax bill because they live in these right. emergency zones, and that's coming on October first. So I think it's, it's, you know, I mean, again, for good reason if you just look at the economic data. But as a political strategy, it might be a bit risky if if the economy actually does slow down because of some of these headwinds. Um, and then they, he owns it, so he's owned it on the upside, um, but he might own it on the downside as as well. Clearly, though, yeah. I don't think the administration thinks that there will be a recession, and that's why they have so you know full so you know full heartedly kind of leaned into this rhetoric. Well, Libby, on the subject of the economy, I know we've spoken with you often on this show about how a shutdown wouldn't necessarily have the same dramatic horrible economic ramifications of a potential default would. But it also strikes me that, especially in the context of the fact that the economy is still strong, Fitch still downgraded the U.S., stripped it of its AAA rating last week. And in your research that you put out earlier this week, you said that downgrade actually only increases the chances of a government shutdown this fall. Can you explain that reasoning? Yeah, I mean, it's somewhat ironic, right? Because yeah. one of the reasons why Fitch downgraded, um, you know, the, the U.S. from AAA to AA plus was citing the sort of the political standoffs and the dysfunction around some of these big fiscal inflection points. Now, of course, I do, you know, I we, we have to note that actually Congress did come to an agreement with, you know, relatively low volatility and, and actually kind of before the actual X date. So they were, uh, in that way, they actually, um, you know, overachieved. Um, right. But still, uh, the point does stand that, of course, we are just getting used to the debt ceiling fights and the government shutdowns and what have you. But ironically, as I did point out in, in my client note, that this actually could increase the chances of a government shutdown. The reason is, is because what we're already seeing is many House Republicans are walking away from the spending limits that were agreed to in the debt, part of the debt ceiling resolution. Um, as part of that resolution, just as a reminder, uh, spending limits for 2024 and 2025 were agreed to and, of course, passed and signed into, into law. Now some House Republicans are want to actually cut those spending cuts. They want to actually fund the government at about $100 billion less than that. Now, this is all kind of eating around the edges because, as we've talked about, discretionary spending is only about a quarter of the, the, the federal budget. But still, they feel like now Fitch downgrading the U.S. just hardens that point of view that, you know, we, that, you know, the U.S. does need to get its fiscal house in order, so to speak. So I think in some ways this just makes it more likely. We already thought it was actually relatively likely for a shutdown would happen this fall. I think this actually just increases the chances because, again, it just sort of hardens that stance for some of these fiscal conservatives to, uh, to not vote for anything, even though, um, you know, I think you know, arguably they did, they did agree to some of these spending limits as part of the, the debt ceiling resolution. So much to look forward to. Libby Cantrell, Managing Director and Head of Public (laughs) Policy at PIMCO. Thank you very much for joining us. And Maddie, it could turn into quite a cocktail come (laughs) September and October, especially if we also get an auto worker strike. In theory, we could. Yeah, a great time for you to be in D.C. covering uh, (laughs) finance and financial regulation for us, Kaylee. Indeed. (laughs) Well, stick around with us for more on the show, you guys. We've got a lot of great conversations coming up.
Make sure to subscribe to the Sound On podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Plus, of course, you can listen anytime on Bloomberg.com. We're going to talk more about that election in Ohio, what it means for 2024 and specifically for voters come 2024. This is Bloomberg. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We're over a year from the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. The result in that Ohio election... That could indicate that abortion rights are still among the biggest driving issues for voters. The question, though, will that be among the most mobilizing issues come November of 2024? Joining us to discuss is our expert panel, Jeannie Shenzano, Bloomberg politics contributor. And we've also got Lauren Tomlinson on from Steer PR, a partner and Republican strategist there. Uh, Thank you both for coming on. Jeannie, I want to start off with you because I'm curious, given what we've seen in Ohio, do you think abortion continues to be among the key driving issues for voters as we head to 2024? Yeah, you know, it is interesting. If you look at the polls, it is increasingly motivating Democrats, particularly, although not exclusively women. It is about the same intensity for Republicans who have long been, you know, very sort of mobilized by the issue of abortion. So that has not changed. But for Democrats, the intensity is rising. And one thing, Madison, that I thought was so fascinating 
and I think it's important to pay attention to is that if you look at President Biden's statement after the decision or the vote yesterday, he never uses the word abortion. Instead of reflecting the polls, he talks about this in the context of freedom. So I'm not so sure it's the issue of abortion, but the issue of freedom for women and others to make their own health care decisions, freedom for people across the board. And that, I think, is going to be a driving factor in this election, freedom and its connection to democracy, as opposed to abortion. Because one thing we know about voters, they're not as concerned about the weeks, 12 weeks, 15, 6. They are concerned that rights and freedoms are not limited or taken away. And that is a driving force in these, you know, last few ballot initiatives we've seen last night in Ohio and, of course, before in Kansas and elsewhere. Yeah, to your point, Biden saying that democracy won in Ohio when uh, voters rejected that measure. Lauren, I want to bring you in here. What is your take on abortion as a key mobilizing issue for voters come November? I think Janine's got it, got it dead on as far as it being highly mobilizing. And I think um, we're going to see both on the Democrat and the Republican side um, this issue um, have very high turnout. I was struck by the numbers of people who voted in a special election in Ohio. I mean, it's the middle of summer. People are on vacation. They're getting their kids ready for school. This isn't exactly um, a time in which people are paying attention to politics. But, you know, millions of people came out for this. And I think that it struck this is one of those issues that struck the right chord of not only motivating people who care deeply about the abortion issue, but also um, Ohioans are going to be protective of a law that has been in place since 1912, I believe, Um, 1901, something like that was what I read. So, you know, there's a lot at play here, too, um, on freedoms, protecting those freedoms, not having special interest or anyone else come in and protecting people's ability to um, bring ballot measures, which is something that um, the Ohioans, I think, really said that they care about. Well, it was so interesting to see such a record number of voters come out for something that typically might get a little bit, you know, swept under the rug when it comes to uh, what matters most to voters, this being kind of a down ballot issue here. Jeannie, do you think that this is a sea change, that voters are changing their priorities when it comes to those down ballot issues? Or is is this a one-off that just got a lot of attention um, because of kind of the advertising and funding around it? You know, I I think we've seen, you know, what, by my count, about three of these so far, Kansas, Michigan, and now Ohio. So we are seeing this, um, you know, and the choice of 60, some people describe as somewhat cynical because the referendum passed in Kansas, 59, Michigan, 57. And so the Republicans wanted to get this up to 60, so it may have a chance to stop it in Ohio. They didn't get there. But, you know, I'm not sure yet if I would describe it as a sea change. I do think there are also dangers of overreading these things as we think about, you know, what they pretend for an election that's over a year away. Again, I describe this as incredibly motivating. I think when you look at the flip side, what you are asking voters to do is to reduce their own power. You're asking people, Ohioans, to go to the polls and say, you know what, I, I should have less power after this than I did before. That's a hard ask under any circumstances. And I totally agree with Lauren when you 
think about, you know, the 3.1 million turned out in 2014 for a midterm. They were at like over 2.8 million last yesterday in August. Those are big numbers. So motivating, yes. I think sea change, we have to sort of take a wait and see attitude on this. I think, you know, the, the Democrats should be very concerned about that New York Times Siena poll. So I think overreading this can be very problematic. Talk to me, Jeannie, about that poll and what what your takeaway is. Well, you know, my view, I, I keep telling Democrats, be very, very upset and concerned about that poll. When you are looking at a poll with the economy getting better, inflation getting better, a, an incumbent president, regardless of age, a a person on the other side leading who's been indicted three times with a threatened fourth, and yet they are neck and neck in one of the most reputable public polls we have. That is a bad sign for Democrats. They have to be very, very concerned as they go forward. And so I I'm, I do get concerned if people overread into this that Democrats are going to get out in full force. Enthusiasm matters, but it's down amongst two key groups in my mind, African-Americans and young people. If they don't get out, Democrats have a big, big problem in that Siena New York Times poll to me was, you know, should have been heartbreaking for all Democrats. Mm, talk to me, Lauren, about about your reaction then to both that poll and just kind of where Republicans stand. I, I was going to ask you if Republicans need to adjust their strategy, given that abortion is continuing to be a driving issue for voters. But uh, to Jeannie's points, when, when we you look at the polls, uh, not as much bad news for Republicans. I think when you're looking at the 2024 presidential election, you won't have single issue voters um, going out in high enough numbers that are going to sway um, whether they vote for a Republican or a Democratic president. Um, I do think, though, like we said, it'll be motivating, but um, they Democrats do have a really big problem with African-American voters and uh, young people. And I think, you know, um, one of the things that is also going to play into this is their feelings generally about where they stand in the economy. Again, this is something that's very hard to predict um, an, a year out, over a year out, and will um, and the Biden administration does have time to right this ship. But at this point, there's not a lot of great feelings about where we are on inflation, on wages, on everyone's uh, kitchen table budgets. And so I think with that type of economic news, even though the Biden administration has been touting Biden economics as um, you know as something to be proud of, I think until people really start feeling the difference that's going to also dampen enthusiasm and you know i would say student loan repayment um not going forward is also just another uh, data point of something that didn't happen that people wanted to and that biden yeah. promised them would and so regardless of the mechanics of the law of how it didn't happen it's going to be noted for people when they start repaying this um this coming october i believe yeah. uh, that uh, that's going to be another strain on their budgets it's going to be another strain on their budgets under this administration yeah lauren quickly with you here what could republicans be doing what would you advise a republican candidate to do right now to reach and get those uh student loan voters that are starting to have to think about repaying those loans again I think for uh, Republicans who are not going to support any sort of forgiveness plans, I think making them understand that uh, the Democrats, this is the messaging that I would advise is making sure that they understand that the Democrats are going to promise them the moon and they can't deliver. And I think that they really set themselves up for this um, as far as the repayment when there was no real legal option to go forward with this, but they just wanted to try to make it happen. 
Um, and, you know, for Republicans, I think making sure that they that they're touting the message that you will be stronger under a Republican president um, with my economic policies, i.e. job growth, low inflation, um, a strong free economy. And um, thus, you will be able to repay your student loans the right way because you will be in a stronger economic position. Jeannie, final thoughts from you, either on student loans or anything else that could move the needle for Biden versus Trump, if that ends up being the the race here? Yeah, you know, I have long said I think that the Biden uh, campaign is going to have to go negative, and they are going Mm -hmm. to have to do that in a concerted way if they don't see these polls change, because an election is a choice, and if they, he's going to have to push hard on democracy and the fact that you cannot trust somebody indicted three, maybe four times to lead the country. All right, well, we're going to have to leave it there, but we are coming back to get more insight from both of you. So thank you so much for sticking around with us. We've got Jeannie Shenzano, our Bloomberg Politics contributor, and Lauren Tomlinson, Steer PR partner and Republican strategist, giving us their insights on all things 2024. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We are just two weeks out from the first big debate for the Republican candidates for president. They're going to now receive the format for that first debate of the season. They've got that as of today. Two weeks from today, those participants are going to gather in Milwaukee. They'll have a two-hour debate that's going to be hosted by Fox News. They will not have opening statements for this first round, but they're going to have 45 seconds for closing remarks. We've got some other uh, formatting details as well, but the one big question we all still have, who's going to show up? 
So here to discuss, we've got our expert panel back with us, Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributor, and Lauren Tomlinson, Steer PR partner and Republican strategist. Jeannie, I want to start with you on the question about former President Trump uh, suggesting that he's going to skip out on this debate. Should he? If I was advising him, I would say skip out. You know, one of the things that Trump mentioned um, in passing was he said Ronald Reagan didn't do it. When you have a big lead, you don't do it. So, you know, you know, I, I would suggest he doesn't have a lot to gain by going in there, particularly given all the legal challenges he's facing. That said, I find it really hard to believe that Trump is going to be able to resist showing up. And I have to say, one of the best parts of this I heard was that the RNC said he's got to give them 48 notice hours notice, and which hmm. makes sense because it's hard logistically to plan these things without knowing who's going to be on the stage. And yet, do you think, Madison, if he showed up with 30 seconds to go, they wouldn't find a space for him of course yeah. they would so yeah. i think we're gonna all be biting our nails until the last minute when he figures out what he's gonna do i just think about all the campaign staffers having to prep notes for either scenario they're uh, feeling bad for them but lauren what do you think about this should president former president trump show up i think he should because i think that um with all of these indictments he's really given a lot of uh pause to i think um more mainstream Republican voters and people who um, are looking for an alternative. And those are going to be the people turning into the debate. Um, so he's not trying to necessarily uh, maintain his lead with his core supporters who have always been there, but make sure that he uh, nullifies any threat that might come from uh, the other candidates that are challenging him, who obviously smell weakness because they're in the race. So, I mean, I think that he needs to show up, he needs to debate, because otherwise he's just giving them the floor to, um, you know, punch an empty podium, which is exactly what you would want, um, in, you know, in any case. But, you know, like we said, they're prepping for both scenarios. I do think he ends up showing up at the very last minute and, you know, just throwing bombs. Um, it would allow him to control the narrative. So I think it would be smart in any ways. Um, but it'd be an interesting debate if he didn't show up um, to allow the others to have a little bit more space to make their arguments in case against him. Yeah, I wonder to what extent those eight other candidates that have qualified, uh, whether they're hoping for or against him showing up. If he doesn't, maybe they have a better chance of getting a word in against former President Trump. Uh, whereas if he does, maybe they all, you know, gain up on him. What do you think about that, Lauren? What's better for those other candidates? I think there's higher viewership um, if Trump shows up, which is why you had the Fox News team going out and asking him to show up. Um, Suzanne Clark, the CEO, and Jay Wallace, the the president, apparently had dinner with him to kind of make the case. So I do think that um, from an eyeball standpoint, you want Trump there. That can play two ways with the candidates. If they're ready to go in and punch and um, and really have land some uh, smart attacks against Trump, it's in their benefit because as we've seen with the Republican primaries for you know many cycles now. Uh, there's always a peak. There's always a momentum with a lot of the underdogs. Every, you know, the Republican candidates will randomly start gaining momentum and voters will take a look. And I think that what you've seen in the polling so far is people don't know who to look to right now. And so the debate will provide that first kind of opportunity for voters to start listening to those messages. And so you know, from that standpoint, I would say that it would be beneficial for Trump to show up for the other candidates. 
Yeah, Jeannie, I just have to say, I keep wondering, and I need to get over this because we've got 15 months left of this, but how much of this just comes down to a Biden-Trump question and everything else that we talk about between now and then is not necessarily going to be game-changing. I don't know. Can you help me make sense of that? (laughs) It's so true. I wonder the same thing. Are we just looking at a repeat? I think one of the things we are hearing from both sides is that the, you know, people don't know what's going to happen. They don't know what's going to happen legally. They don't know what's going to happen health-wise. So, you know, there could always be a surprise in the mix. But, you know, just to get back to the debate for a minute, I I think, you know, the, the reality is, is that on Fox and Friends this morning, they were downright begging Donald Trump to show up because viewership will be, you know, just incredibly low if they don't get Donald Trump there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the people who's got to probably be, you know, sort of hoping he shows up for viewership, but sort of hoping he doesn't is Brett Baer because he is co-hosting with Martha McCallum. And, you know, Donald Trump is no friend of Brett Baer at this point after that last interview. Mm-hmm. So he is going to go after Brett Baer if he is there. That's going to be fascinating to see see. And also, of course, he is promising counter-programming if he doesn't show up on somebody like Tucker Carlson. So, you know, this thing could go any way, just like the election itself, Madison. So I wish I had a good answer for you, but I'm hoping it's not a repeat. But, you know, at this point, they're the leading candidates, so I think it might be. Well, it makes me wonder, too. I, I think back to the CNN town hall and how he shows up for that and not for a debate like this. But having said that, you know, we do have that new Gallup poll showing uh, both former President Trump and President Biden. Same favorability ratings at 41 percent. Uh, Jeannie, I wonder to what extent does anything that Trump does or doesn't do if he does or doesn't show up to the debate, does that change that favorability rating for him? You know, I don't think so. And and I don't think it does, uh, except around the edges for either Biden or Trump. Mm. They are both, you know, former presidents or current president. They are both incredibly well known. It's not like these people are just being introduced to the American public by any stretch of the imagination. The one thing we do hear r- repeatedly from the Republican base is that one more indictment may sway them more toward President Trump. But I don't get the sense mm. that that is because they're learning something new about him or they're going to see him more favorably. It's the other side that they're angry at that might push them over to that edge. So I don't think we're seeing going to see their favorables change that much. This is going to be an election if it's Trump versus Biden. Once again, like 2016 and 2020, where both of the major party candidates are wildly unpopular, unfortunately. Yeah, it seems like another round of the same when it comes to what we're going to be talking about heading into 2024. Thank you, Jeannie Shenzano, Bloomberg Politics contributor, and Lauren Tomlinson, Steer PR partner and Republican strategist, joining us to discuss that coming up debate two weeks from today. Obviously, we'll be covering all of the updates for you right here at Bloomberg, so be sure to stick with us for all of the debate coverage that you need. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. All right, Senator Dianne Feinstein of California. we got to talk about her because she was hospitalized on Tuesday. She fell in her San Francisco home. She's now back at home. No serious injuries reported, but... 
it's yet another incident for the senator and brings up a lot more questions about her health and the overall situation when it comes to uh, these members of Congress and how they're doing in terms of age and health. So we're going to talk to our panel a little bit about this. Uh, Jeannie Shenzano, Bloomberg's politics contributor and Lauren Tomlinson's steer PR partner and Republican strategist still on with us. Uh, Jeannie, this kind of puts Senator Feinstein's peers in a tough spot as well, right? It does. And we have heard them, you know, quietly discussing this. We have seen, unfortunately, as she's had trouble, um, she was out for a while earlier this year. She came back. She had trouble with some of the votes. Um, You know, amongst many other things included in this discussion, there's also real discussions about gender. We've had uh, Mm -hmm. men who have served in the Senate for a a long time and have older ages like Strom Thurmond and Robert Byrd. Um, And, you know, the reality for women is they tend to enter politics later due to issues involving family and children and they want to serve later because they want to make their mark in that way and so this has become a real question and I don't think there is any easy answer to this I mean I think we're all just very happy to hear she is okay but it is a tough thing for both her her family and her colleagues yeah well and to your point Jeannie she's not the only one who has had some health issues and some uh, very public health issues as of late I think about uh, Mitch McConnell, for example, uh, when he was struggling uh, at the hot mic. Uh, Lauren, what do you make of the dichotomy when it comes to uh, the different ways that different uh, officials are being talked about when it comes to their health and their age? I don't see as much of a dichotomy here because, um, you know, when the hot mic happened with McConnell and when he fell during that fundraising event, I think a lot of the conversations were very similar to what we're talking about with Diane Feinstein, which is quietly people raising a lot of concerns, the media obviously talking about it um, a good bit and the, you know, the question being um, about age um, in general of our politicians, how the average age of Congress has gone up, how we might potentially have two 80 year olds running for president. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that generally age and, you know, maybe it reflects, a, a, you know, a moment in time, too, as we're kind of entering into a period where our average age as Americans are going up as well. Um, where we're going to have to contend with this, where, you know, boomers are not retiring from the office the way that some of the younger generation would like them to. I think there's a lot of parallels between what we're seeing in Congress and also um, what we're seeing in the workplace. But I will say, I do think that this is a little of home state politics as well with Dianne Feinstein. Um, You know, at some point, the the state party needs to get in front of her and talk about realistically how she serves going forward. And again, the Senate has a long tradition of people sitting there for a long time, you know, in their wheelchairs. So I don't think that there needs to be undue pressure for her to leave until she's ready. However, you know, they do have it's not they're not going to cede the state uh, cede the seat to a Republican. Uh, Governor Newsom can appoint someone when they're ready, and he has promised to um, to appoint a black female um, into that Senate seat. And so I think there's a little bit of the home state politics coming to play here where they're trying to figure out the timing for that and uh, who would be the right person to appoint. And when they're ready, they may have a more serious conversation with uh, Senator Feinstein about stepping down. Yeah, well, it's interesting you bring up the ages of the potential presidential candidates as well, because we've been talking about that new Gallup poll today uh, that talks about former President Trump and President Biden. But what we haven't talked about is that First Lady Jill Biden is one of only two Americans to get a favorable rating in that poll. Uh, Jeannie, we got about 20 seconds left here, but do you think the Biden campaign needs to be bringing 
First Lady Biden out on the trail a little bit more? Uh, They absolutely do. She is, you know, the most popular of the Bidens and of the people on the campaign trail right now. So they need to get her out there as much as possible. Yeah, it it seems like it if you look at uh, this Gallup poll for sure there. Uh, Jeannie Shenzano, Bloomberg Politics contributor, and Lauren Tomlinson, Steer PR partner and Republican strategist in for us. Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than a destination. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all. All of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a Stiefel Financial Advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.